today. Uh, we come to the end of our series within a series that has been going on for a number of weeks as we uh, come to the end of the Ten Commandments this morning that God spoke to Israel there at Mount Sinai. As we've continued our study and exposition through the book of Exodus, we come then to verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20 this morning. So let me read that one verse for us and then pray that God will bless our study and we'll begin together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would help us by your grace this morning to hear your word, for we know that you've breathed it out for our instruction, for our training in righteousness, that you might convict our hearts of sin and so lead us to your Son who is our Savior. And so help us to hear with earnestness, with eagerness, with faith and repentance. For me to preach as you say I must, with clarity and with courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now let me tell you a story which is, I promise, a true story about a man named Art Lampett. It was in 1963 that Art Lampett found himself in a major automobile accident. His T-Bird had been T-boned by a semi-truck, and as you would expect, that semi-truck won that car collision. And so Art Lampett, as a result, was quickly raced off to a local hospital where they began to do immediate repair on the number of things that had happened to his body as a result of that a car crash. They began to mend his hip that had been smashed. They worked on four ribs that were broken. And they also noticed that his left arm was incredibly large and swollen. And so they began to pull out piece by piece amidst all the lacerations and other cuts, 50 different pieces of glass that had been lodged in his left arm. And if you fast forward Art Lampett's life story 51 years to only just a few years ago, You'd find him uh, finding it relatively difficult uh, to raise with his left arm something of any significant weight. And so he went to a few different uh, medical doctors seeking their opinion, and they sent him to a specialist. And uh, that specialist discovered with uh, some degree of speed something that should have been noticed a very long time ago. That wedged within his left arm was the turn signal rod from his T-bird and the car crash some 51 years prior. And what had happened, of course, at that time in the original car crash is that they were paying attention, understandably so, to all of these external realities on his arm that they had missed altogether, that there was a much larger internal problem that needed to be addressed. And we come to the same kind of situation with the tenth word that God spoke to Israel. For in a way that's unique, this is not so much about a forbidden action as it's about a forbidden affection. It's reminding us that the life of devotion and obedience to God is one of the heart, one of inward realities. And students, you need to know, and I do hope you know, that Satan, that sin in your heart, that the world even around you is always laboring to get you fixated and focused on external things. Uh, missing altogether the reality of Scripture that God looks at the inward man where we look at 
outer appearance. Even Jesus Christ himself reserved one of his harshest words for the religious leaders and a woe that he called down upon them, saying that you clean the outside of the cup. External righteousness. But inwardly, it's all full of greed and and covetousness. So we're going to see this morning, God placed his finger, as he put his finger there on those stone tablets, at the very tablet of our heart, wanting to poke and prod in a way that perhaps might make us uncomfortable. But nevertheless, it's going to point us in a positive direction. Uh, We've noticed in the last several months, when we've come to each one of these commandments, we've tried to express the theme for that study with the positive side of the given commandment. So, if you might remember, the first commandment calls us to live to worship God alone. The second commandment is live to worship God rightly. The third commandment is a commandment that calls us to live to magnify God's name. The fourth is one that calls us to live in dependence upon God. The fifth is one that calls us to live to honor others. The sixth, live to protect life. The seventh, live in purity. The eighth, live in generosity. And last week was live in truthfulness towards others. So if you look down again at verse 17, it's a negative command. It's a prohibition, isn't it? You shall not do something. What's the positive implication of verse 17? Well, that positive implication is our theme, live in contentment. That's the simple call of this text, to live in contentment. And to help you see that, we're going to notice, first of all, the heart of covetousness. And we're going to glance to a significant New Testament passage in the second section, thinking about the help for coveters, before by the end I trust we can uh, get to the treasure that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the first thing we want to look at is the heart of coveting. You see the command begins, you shall not covet. Now perhaps parents, you have been like us recently as we've been studying the Ten Commandments and you've I read the text with your children, tried to prepare for Sunday morning, and you said, you know, hey, what does it mean to commit adultery? Or, hey, what does it mean to not observe the Sabbath? And, and we've talked to the kids a number of times about these things. And last night, they actually got this one really right when we said, what does it mean to covet? And I trust that actually might be because all of us know the universal temptation that belongs to coveting. The original word just means something like taking pleasure in or finding delight in or desiring something. The last time this word has been used in the Bible, actually you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where in verse 6 we're told that Eve saw that the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eyes. And so what did she do? She desired it. Even the original sin itself is rooted in covetousness. But we know, don't we, students, that God doesn't forbid all desire, right? This isn't just saying you may not desire something. Because there are a number of places where God's commanding us to desire things. We can think of a number of them, can't we? We're supposed to desire fellowship with the Father, communion with Christ, strength from the Spirit. A spouse is supposed to desire and is right to desire the affection and attention from his or her spouse. We, of course, are knowing that kids, children, should desire their parents' affection, provision, and oversight, and care. So desire is a good thing. But here, we're talking about forbidding sinful desire. Uh, You might say a simple way to define coveting is that it's a sinful craving for something that doesn't belong to you. As a sinful craving for something that doesn't belong to you. And perhaps the best way I can illustrate that is with a character from literary lore of years ago. This literary character happens to be the most famous literary character in the Stone household at the time. 
It's a literary character that excites some of our children. It's a literary character that frightens others of our children. And it's a literary character that many of you will know if I just say two words. My precious. <laughs> Which, if you know, this slimy creature named Gollum. He longs for this ring of power with such desperation and lust that he's always saying, my precious, my precious. And the reason that's significant is because this word for covet here in certain contexts can be translated as precious. And so it's a heart that's lusting, longing for passions and pleasures and something that doesn't belong to you where you're always saying, my precious. And you notice the expansiveness of the command. First, you can't covet property. You see verse 17 continues. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Of course, coveting another's neighbor's property was not unique to Israel. It still happens today. How often might you have been in the neighborhood if I just had that yard? That garage, that kitchen, those rooms. Life would be better. Kids, you may have been over at a friend's house and said, if I just had that backyard, if I just had that bedroom, where I could be maybe by myself and wouldn't have to share a room anymore, life would be much better. You can't covet property. Number two, you can't covet other people. You see how verse 17 continues. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. It's forbidding the sinful craving for another spouse, thinking that will bring you satisfaction. Another's employees, thinking that will bring you enjoyment. Many of you know that even in our time, the coveting of other people can often come in the form of coveting other children, because maybe you can't have any. Or perhaps coveting a spouse that God hasn't yet provided you with as a single person. You can covet property. You can covet people. Of course, it's forbidding that, as also it's forbidding us from coveting possessions. Notice how the text ends. You shall not covet his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So it's expansive enough to say, well, if you can put your eyes on it and it belongs to him, you can't crave it. Now, kids and students, I imagine that you're not going to be threatened this week with the temptation of coveting another's livestock. <laughs> you probably aren't having a donkey or a cow in a nearby pasture that you so desperately long for to bring you fulfillment. But certainly there are possessions, aren't there? That you might covet, perhaps it's cars, it's clothes, it's toys, devices, anything else. If I just could have that, my precious, things would be much, much better. And what's unique about this tenth word that God spoke to the nation of Israel is that it's utterly unique in ancient Near Eastern law codes because there's a number of other commandments there on the stone tablets that you can find in other ancient cultures. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. But you'll look in vain for any other ancient culture that had this public prohibition against coveting. That if the nation of Israel was to keep this word, that appropriately is the book into the first commandment, that we desire, of course, only one God. And of course, they would stand out as utterly unique, distinct, separate, altogether holy in the world. And how many even of our churches today in our context of North Texas might better stand out? as unique, distinct, separate, altogether holy, if there was a, a true obedience to the tenth word. I was there, there was this show a number of years ago that focused on a doctor who was supposedly something of a Sherlock Holmes in the hospital. 
Uh, he could diagnose with ease a disease that had befuddled everyone else in the building. And you might sit in here today and say, yes, uh, certainly I know that I have fallen short of God's commandment in the tenth word. I have coveted. I am coveting. But, but help me understand how we can get underneath that maybe. Well, what really is the heart that tends to motivate this kind of sinful craving and, and passionate desires for what doesn't belong to me? Or you could say a number of things biblically might lie deeper underneath any sort of coveting passion. Uh, You could point to something like distrusting God's providence. As you look at your circumstances and situations, your trials and your troubles, uh, you say, God, if if your divine decree was just shoved aside and you just kind of stepped off the throne for a second, I know exactly what I need in my life. I want that and that would make everything okay. It might not just be distrusting God's providence. It also could be doubting God's goodness. But those same circumstances and situations, trials and troubles, you doubt they actually come from the hand of a good and loving Father who's working them all together for your good. So God, just step aside for a second. Let me covet something that I really need and want because that will mean my life is better. And those things are true. Things on which you should meditate. But that actually isn't the heart of coveting according to God's word. Because the Bible with a sense of relative ease diagnoses this disease of coveting. And we read from it earlier already in our reading from the law where Colossians chapter 3 says, Put off therefore what's earthly in you. Put to death what's earthly in you. Covetousness, which is idolatry. That's the heart of covetousness. It's taking property and giving it greater priority than God. It's taking another person that doesn't belong to you and giving it greater priority than God. It's taking a possession that doesn't belong to you and giving it greater priority than God. And if you know what idolatry is, you know that's the essence of idolatry. Giving anything the place of prominence and preeminence a greater priority than God himself. So coveters at their core are idolaters. That's what God says is the heart of covetousness. So what help then does he give coveters? Well, that's the second thing I want you to see this morning. A number of these old pastors that I tend to read throughout uh, the week, they used to talk about the spiritual life as something of a spiritual treasure hunt. And you're always hunting for hidden gems and, and jewels of grace. And one particular pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs Uh, called a particular grace, uh, the rare jewel that we should always seek after. Or Thomas Watson called that same grace, the bespangled jewel that beautifies a Christian like a sparkling diamond. And what they were talking about then was contentment. That that what Christians need to yearn for, long for, labor for, is contentment. Because that's the positive side of of the 10th commandment. So what I want to do to give you some of that help, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for a few minutes. Because 1 Timothy chapter 6 gives us, certainly in the apostolic writings, the the most sustained uh, teaching on contentment that you're going to find in that portion of the New Testament. And what I want you to see is why Paul tells us uh, we must be content. And it's going to get us back to, by verse 9 and 10 of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy, uh, where we were in the 10th commandment. So you'll notice verse 6, if 1 Timothy 6 is open in front of you. This is kind of the masthead verse for his teaching in this book on contentment. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
uh, children. That's significant because there are a number of other things Paul could have said that would have been true. Godliness with hope is great gain. Godliness with joy is great gain. Godliness with peace and patience and perseverance, that's great gain. But he chooses to concentrate on contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And you'll notice verse 7 links it logically. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Reason number one of three in this passage for contentment. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. What you so desperately want and long for and think is going to complete your life and bring you satisfaction and fulfillment. Guess what? You're not taking it with you. I mean, he's just leaning on this Old Testament ethic that you're going to find in the wisdom writings in particular. You think of Ecclesiastes 5 or the righteous man Job says it even in Job chapter 1. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. It's leaning also on that great biblical ethic of living your life in light of eternity. That this life here on earth is just a passing pilgrimage. It's just the passing of a preface of a life story that gives way to an eternal story where each chapter for God's people just gets better and better than the previous chapter. Uh, You can't take it with you. Significantly, reason number two is you already have enough. Look at what he says in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So children... Uh, What you may not know, what you may know, is you currently don't own any property. So it might be easy to covet other people's property. You currently don't have any person, namely a spouse, that belongs to you. So you might covet another person. You actually, whether or not your parents have told you, you don't have any possessions. Because everything in your house is actually theirs. And so you can easily covet. But notice... Paul said, you have every reason to be content. And I know that because of what what you look like in front of me right now. You have clothes and you've been fed. And he says, that's all you need to be content. Strikingly, if you just have clothing and food, you have enough already. Thirdly, covetousness brings destruction. Look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9 and 10. But those who desire... You see the language of coveting even there with this sinful craving. Desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many sinful and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving, here then the language of coveting once again, that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. Even that final verb there of pierced, it's quite... Pictorial in the original, it's actually this language of impale. uh, That many people have impaled their lives because of their covetous desires. How many homes have been impaled upon a covetous desire of a parent or a spouse? How many churches have been impaled on the covetous desire of a leader or a pastor? Uh, Why must you be content, Paul says. Well, you can't take it with you. You have everything you need already. And here, of course, that warning. Covetousness always brings destruction. And so strikingly is the spiritual destruction that even verse 10 is going to use the language as some have wandered away from the faith. The heart of covetousness is idolatry. The help for coveters is, is contentment. Now let's see how we can bring that to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
it was probably about 15 years ago that a best-selling Christian author by the name of Jerry Bridges, he published a, a book that was titled Respectable Sins. The subtitle was Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. About two years ago, we actually used uh, that book as material for a Sunday school class that I taught through here at Redeemer. And if uh, you take the bestseller status that belongs to the book combined with what was a uniquely overwhelming positive feedback related to the Sunday school class on its content, uh, I'm sure that Jerry Bridges was touching something of a nerve. Because what he says in the preface to the book is this, that the motivation stems from a growing conviction that some of us, whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the sins of society around us that we've lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined and subtle sins. And what he goes on in the course of that book to define as a, one of the more refined and subtle sins of ordinary Christians today is this contentment and covetousness. It's quite easy even when you work through the Ten Commandments, isn't it? To work through them in such a way that you just become finger pointers spiritually. That you work through the sixth commandment and it becomes a study mostly about the sins of society in abortion. Which is true. But as we've talked about, Jesus is driving it home to the heart and anger. Of course, you can do the same thing with the seventh commandment. Pointing forward to the sins of society and divorce. That Jesus is pulling it inward, isn't he? With a prohibition against any sort of lust. But he's not going to let us off the hook by the time we get to the 10th word because there's no way around it. He is poking and prodding right at our innermost being with you may not covet another's property, people, or possessions. And to make sure that this doesn't become sort of, sort of refined and respectable sin in your life. Let me help you see three more things as we begin to close. First, I want you to see how the 10th word calls us to see the trouble of covetousness. And by trouble, I mean eternal trouble. Because you think of what we already read, and you can combine it with the same parallel passage in Ephesians 5. We already read from Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Covetousness, which is idolatry. But that's not where the sentence ends. The clause continues into a consequence and conclusion. For, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That sinful wants gets God's wrath. Sinful desires earn God's destruction. Unrepenters are people who don't repent of their covetousness. People who don't believe in Jesus Christ. When covetousness runs amok in a person's life, uh, you can trust that God's wrath and destruction is on the way. That's no mere small, subtle sin. This is one that Ephesians 5 says means you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. So you need to reckon with the reality that covetousness has eternal trouble. But also I want you to reckon with the reality, secondly, of the teaching of Christ. You don't need to turn there. You can just write it down. Uh, Jesus himself takes the Ten Commandments in view, actually with a parable mostly, in Luke chapter 12. If you know that scene well, he's teaching that day and he's just said something about his role as judge. And it seems like a man there in the crowd is taking that into his mind and says, Okay, and he cries out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, you're the judge, so judge between me and my brother. And Jesus says, Well, I have no reason to judge between you and your brother. And so Jesus doesn't give him a decision. Jesus gives him a duty. He says, Take care and be on your guard against 
all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then to prove the point, he gives them an illustration. The parable of the rich fool. Uh, Kids, here's the point of Jesus' parable. He talks about this man who had this bumper crop one year in an agricultural world. So he needs to build bigger barns. And he keeps building these huge barns to store all of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his riches, only to realize, as Jesus says by the end of the parable, God will come along one day and says, You fool. This, the Lord says, this night... Your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So perhaps Paul's language in 1 Timothy chapter 6 of you can't take it with you, as his own meditation reflection on Jesus' teaching. You've stored it all up. You've lived your life in a covetous desire, and it's all getting ready to be burned down. Thus, his conclusion is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's the covetous heart that finds treasure in possessions. It's the covetous heart that finds treasure, first and foremost, in other people, another's property. Which leads us, of course, to the final point I want you to see this morning. Not just the teaching of Jesus Christ, but the treasure of Jesus Christ. The language in the New Testament that gives us this word of contentment is language actually that more originally speaks of contentment as kind of self-sufficiency. It's sufficient language. How can you be content in life? Well, you need to know the secret of sufficiency. Well, how can you be content in life, Paul says, without knowing the secret lies in the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Does not Paul say, I've learned the secret in every situation, whether in plenty or in want, that I can do all things through Jesus Christ? That he is that treasure that swallows up all of our covetous desires. He, of course, has obey this commandment perfectly in our place. He has, of course, poured out the Spirit upon us that He might write this commandment perfectly into our hearts that you too actually might abound in contentment. For it's the coveter that wants another's property. But it's the person content in Jesus Christ that recognizes Christ has gone ahead of us to prepare an eternal abode for us in His Father's presence. It's the coveter who wants another's person, spouse, or individual Of course, the person who's content in Jesus Christ that knows we are the bride of Jesus Christ, his loved one, his treasure and chief delight. It's the coveter who wants another person's possessions, but it's the person content in Jesus Christ that recognizes he is our possession because he is our inheritance. So it's the person who's content in Christ that recognizes what the Song of Songs is always pointing towards. I am... My beloved's, and his desire is for me. Such is the desire of Christ for his own people, for his very bride that he spilled his blood, that they might be forgiven of their covetous, idolatrous desires and so restored to find all sufficiency and delight in him. Treasure Christ, and you, of course, will grow in contentment. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to grow in this grace of contentment to which you have called us. We pray that we would know the sufficiency that's found in Jesus Christ alone, that he is our life, that our life is already hidden in him, 
that all the pleasures for which we long are found at your right hand where he is seated. Strengthen us, we pray, that we might by your spirit put to death the covetous desires that are within us and so might find that great gain of godliness that belongs to contentment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.